of talking about something that's happening in Knoxville, I thought maybe we could pray for other churches in the area in one specific, one specific, I guess, area. In a few weeks, whenever we're finished with Advent, we're going to jump into a series that I'm really excited about. I've been preparing for it for quite a while, um, just on the gospel itself, and I'll explain more whenever that series gets here. But really what it means to be a gospel-centered or a gospel-formed person that make up a a bunch of us make up a gospel-formed church. Um, but one thing that we've been talking about as a staff is what, what does it look like to build a gospel-shaped or a gospel-centered service, like an environment, right? We went through a book together as a staff called People Are the Mission, um, which is basically a book helping us understand how to be more hospitable as a church. Um, so we try really hard to build an environment as a church that when people come in that just aren't used to going to churches, I mean, churches in any shape, right? But especially a church in a high school auditorium. This would be foreign to them. We want them to feel welcome. We don't want there to be stumbling blocks outside of Christ himself. So we try to build something that just makes sense, where they come in and they feel welcome. Everything is understood, right? So whenever we handle guests a certain way, and if you're a guest here today, our goal is not to get you to just come back. That's not the, the end goal of our hospitality. Our goal is that you would experience, at least to a small degree, experience what the gospel feels like, to be served, to, to even though you might be an outsider, to be welcomed to, to show grace at a cost to us for a benefit to you that we could bring you close and say welcome. That is, that is the goal, and it should be the goal of any church's hospitality ministry is to make outsiders feel welcome, whether they're outside the church or just outside our local church. Um, and so when I've been thinking about this, and as a staff, we've been kind of talking it through a little bit, the ultimate goal of what we're trying to build, and it hits me. We have so many people that serve at a high level here on Sunday mornings. Most of you know this because our saturation level is very high for volunteers, meaning that if you are a part of Legacy or a partner with Legacy, it's highly likely you are serving somewhere to make this Sunday morning thing what it is, right? I mean, I, I joke about it sometimes, but there's always a person back here, it's Nathan Simmons today, in this little gremlin closet that you can't even see from where you're sitting. It's all totally dark, and there's this big, giant computer back there, and everything you see on the screen is because he is so smart, and he knows how to run that. That's a form of hospitality to make people feel more welcome, to make this a, an easier setting. We have people coming at 8.30 in the morning, 8.30, even earlier, to set stuff up. I got here at 8.30. Half this was already set up, right? Because the people you saw on stage... It might look like that's just natural to them. Hours of work went into them preparing just that set. They are lugging equipment all over the place. Whenever you are already into the middle of your lunch, they will still be tearing all of this down. They will still be putting it up, right? The coffee didn't make itself. The, the tables out there, the iPads, the printers, all the things to get kids. Let's just talk about the kids' community. That is an army of volunteers. I mean, the intentionality that goes into just... Caring for everyone's kids is an immense responsibility, a lot of volunteer service. So we work really hard at building a hospitable environment. But what hits me as I was praying for everybody this morning is the motives behind why we serve. And this is where I think we as a church could pray, not just for legacy, but for other churches in the Knox metro area that really have a good, firm, gospel-shaped, gospel-formed view of how to welcome outsiders. You see, if you volunteer, there's probably a lot of reasons you might be propelled into volunteering. It might be because it's the right thing to do, right? It might be because somebody's got to do it. It might as well be you. 
needs to be done. You might even serve because it brings maybe a feeling of righteousness. Like maybe not that God is in debt to you, but possibly God likes you a little bit more because you serve in a certain way. I'm, I, I think what I would like to just maybe focus on just for a second before we jump into the sermon is I don't think it's good enough to build a gospel-formed and a gospel-shaped environment. I think it has to be gospel-centered hearts that do it. Even the motives behind why we volunteer should be shaped and formed and massaged and challenged and encouraged by the gospel itself, right? There's so many toxic ways that we might serve, toxic reasons to get us to serve, but when we see the gospel in such a way that it is God serving mankind at a cost to himself for our benefit, then it means that we are free to serve. We're actually free to serve in the same shape and the same path that we were served, right? As the Bible says, Christ came not to be served, but to serve himself. And that means that we are free to do the same thing. There's no more righteousness for us to collect. We don't have to look a certain way before God, right? We look a certain way before God already because of what Christ has done as he served us. And so if you serve here, and if you're a member or a partner with Legacy, it's highly likely that you do. I want you to just take a second over the next week. As you think about how you serve, ask yourself why you do it. Why do you do it? Why is it that you put all the time in? Why is it that you put the thinking into how you help us do something like a Sunday morning? Is it gospel-shaped? I think you can have people that are not gospel-shaped in their heart, not gospel-centered, build something that looks like it is gospel-centered without it actually being there. I just wouldn't want that to happen here, and I don't want it to happen in other churches. So maybe we can pray for the motives of the hearts of the people that serve legacy so well, so consistently, so thoughtfully, so kindly, and maybe for other churches as well. So let's, let's just pray for a second, and then we'll jump in. Father, I thank you for being so sweet to us and so kind to us because we do have a lot of volunteers, and they give so selflessly. I have the Fosters driving in from Kodak every single week. Such a long drive. We have people driving in from Seymour every week. We have people giving hours of their weekdays to get ready for something like this. Right now, there are people back with other folks' kids. I mean, it, it is a big price that we pay as volunteers when we serve others. And Lord, I know that it is going to be our temptation to maybe be grumpy with that kind of service, maybe be upset because nobody notices that level of service. Maybe we're doing it for toxic reasons, but Lord, that you would cause us to take pause and just celebrate the fact that we're free to do that. There's a freedom on us. We don't have to collect or assemble a profile that you're impressed with through our service. We don't have to donate our time or our talent so that you like us more, or maybe pull us a little bit closer to you. But Father, that we are loved even if we've never served a day because of how Christ has served us. And that, that in and of itself gives us freedom to do the, what we do. And not just for legacy, but Father, I know that there are other gospel-centered churches in this city, other fantastic churches in this city, that they do the same thing, they read the same books, they have the same staff meetings that talk about the same things. How do we build something on a Sunday morning that is not scaring guests to death? How do we build something where they come in and they just feel welcome and loved? And Lord, we pray that you would work and massage the motives of those volunteers as well. Lord, we love you and we thank you. You're so good to us and you're so kind to us. We wouldn't understand hospitality if it wasn't for the gospel showing us exactly what it looks like. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, 
Open it up to Luke 1. Luke is going to be very helpful for us today. I hope you had a restful Thanksgiving. Welcome to holiday halftime, right? That little speck of time in between Black Friday and Christmas Eve. That It's this awkward little speck of maybe three weeks, a span of time where we are trying to catch our breath <laughs> like a halftime, trying to get ready for a new wave of activity and party. Some of you, you don't even have a chance to get your breath. You have like parties this week, right? Trying to get ready to the idea of making more food for yet another thing. It's this odd span of time where you are trying to figure out how to use your new Fitbit or Instapot or whatever you got on Black Friday that happens in the next three weeks. We got a Roomba at our house. Paula's very excited about it. She calls it her new boyfriend. <laughs> I think that's a slam on me because I don't sweep the floors very much. I let her know that all I have to do is just flip that thing over on its back and it's totally useless that I'm still better out of the two of us, me and the Roomba. I think I still win. But it's also a span of time where we're just trying to figure out, is our family going to behave on Christmas if it misbehaved on Thanksgiving? How are we going to look? This is supposed to be a bright and sunny and cheery and pressure-free time of year for us because of what we're celebrating, but it's just kind of not. It's heavily laden with pressure, a lot of stress, trying to figure out, trying to figure out if the, the leftovers for Thanksgiving are still good. They are not, by the way. Go ahead and throw those away. Don't get sick. If they're still in your fridge, they're probably not good anymore. And just looking down the barrel of a big holiday, you have 20 shopping days left, by the way. You're welcome for that. I know as a preacher and as a teacher, I do look forward to this holiday halftime because I get to preach the epic gospel, which I love to do, but I get to do it from the perspective of the incarnation, right? We're, we're, we're zooming in to a specific angle of the gospel, and it's the incarnation. And listen, if you're kind of still learning some of the vocabulary words of this thing we call the gospel or in the Bible, all, all the incarnation is, and that, that's, that is just a word that means God came near to us and put flesh on. He just put flesh on to be among us. And he did, he came, he walked among us, he laughed with us, cried with us, listened to mankind's heart, he, he, he challenged mankind, he pastored and shepherded mankind. He was one of us, didn't sin like us. He was fully God, but he had flesh on. He was fully man at the exact same time. And in all of our busyness in this time of year, with all of what's going on, Keeping perspective on the gospel is going to be very valuable to us. So for the next four weeks, we're going to look at the advent of Jesus, just as Hillary said, right? All advent means, it's a Latin word. We don't really use that word very much. It just means coming, entering, approaching, right? It's the coming of God. And we did this last year, and we do this every year. We always take the three or four weeks before Christmas, depending on how the calendar works out, and we look at advent maybe a little bit differently. Um, and last year, we did it by looking at Christmas carols. Right, just the, the average ones, the, the recognizable ones, the ones that when you walk into Starbucks, it's George Michael playing it or something, and you, you might know like one line of it. You, you could sing like 20% of the song and then you run out. Those, because what we found is when you look at Christmas carols that we all just toss around, they're actually elements of the gospel littered throughout them. Moments and opportunities for us to see God clearly in something that we just handle so commonly. And I enjoyed that, just kind of, the refreshing nature of reformatting some very common carols. Because every time I would hear a Christmas carol growing up, from, from whether I was in a Walmart or a Starbucks or wherever, wherever it was playing, I would never feel like I needed to worship God. 
Like if I heard a basic Christmas carol, I'd want to buy something. That was the Pavlovian um, response I would want to do. I just want to buy something or bake something or something Christmassy, right? Check that. I've never wanted to bake anything in my life. I'm sorry. That was a lie. <laughs> I know where bakeries are at. Don't judge me. You don't bake stuff either probably. We all know where to get a pie, right? I'd want to do a lot of things but not worship. This year, I'd like to revisit a theme that we found very helpful as a church several years ago before a lot of you were here. As a church, we enjoyed looking at the original Christmas songs, not carols, but the extemporaneous songs that came from the lungs of people that God had spoken to about the fact that God is coming, Simeon and Zechariah and Mary and even the angels. I found it. this might be a helpful place for us to look at it again because we just came out of a series that talked about the Holy Spirit the operation of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We walked very slowly through 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14. So I found that maybe this would be a good dovetail to what we just looked at. I've been looking forward to this for a long time too, which is ironic because I'm not a sing-songy guy when it comes to songs. I have, a, I have a premium you know, Spotify account like a lot of you do, but you won't find me singing to it, right? I might rap every now and then or try to. But I just don't like to sing. Here's the interesting thing, though. When God visits people in the Bible and tells them good news of his coming, they can't help but sing. They feel free and creative to just sing at this. And I think these songs, when we look at them, you're going to find that they will speak directly to your time and space today in 2019. Today. I mean, it's been good. My heart has been led the last few weeks looking at these songs. Now, we're going to look at Mary's song today, and we didn't know that, Mary didn't know at the time when she was singing this song that I believe was really empowered by the Holy Spirit right there in the moment. I don't think that she knew that it was going to address everything that I was going to bring into this room today in 2019. It's a different millennium, different continent, different culture, same issues though, same problems. I mean, it's, listen, your Bible is alive. The Word of God, it is alive. It is timeless and outside of time, and yet it's timely, all at the same time. It's timely for us. In fact, I think these songs of Christmas, they speak to us all year long. Advent doesn't mean Christmas. It means coming. And not just coming once, but there's two comings, right? God has come close to mankind through the manger. That's advent number one. He will come again. The second advent is where he comes back on a radiant white horse, victorious. He is our hero rescuer. He will come, assemble his family, call us to himself. He will defeat the deceiver. He will recreate a new earth and a new heaven. That is the second advent. Right now we're stuck in the middle between advents. Looking back and reflecting on the one that has already come, God has come, looking forward to where he will come again. We could live on this every day of the year. It's not just a Christmas thing, right? I think this is valuable if we're a gospel-centered church, right? You hear me say that again. I don't say that we're a gospel-centered church because I really hope that we'll become one. We're a gospel-centered church because from the cheap seats all the way up to the pastoral leadership of how decisions are made and how money is spent, we do so with the gospel in hand. The gospel defines how we move forward as a church, the culture that we build, the philosophy of ministry, the decisions that we make all the way down the line. We are a gospel-centered church. Valuable to our gospel story are the two advents that frame everything up. God has come. He will come again. If you take either one of those out, Either advent, take the virgin birth out, 
or you take Jesus coming back to rescue us again, if you take those out, you have a powerless and polluted gospel. It's not helpful for us. It's not good news anymore at all, actually. And that's, that's what it means. The word gospel means glad tidings. Good news. Glad tidings. Tidings isn't really a word that we use much anymore. I, I mean, I saw it the other day in Starbucks on a sign, good coffee, glad tidings. I'm sure they will tack that down in January, right? It's one of those words that we use in December. We ditch in January, right? Tidings. You just don't say it unless you're, I don't know, drunk or British or something like that. But the word gospel also means report, good report, good news, good story. I don't know if you know this. If you're new to Legacy, I wouldn't know why you would. That's why we named our church Legacy Church. A legacy, a legacy is a treasure, specifically a story that is left from one generation to the next. We knew before we knew anything about what this would become, it, it, we knew that the most valuable thing we could leave to our kids and our kids' kids is the story, not of our lives, but the story of another. In fact, the only thing that is worth telling about your little biography is how it intertwines with God's greater story. That's the only thing that's valuable about our stories is the fact that it's part of something much grander. So that is why we are named the way that we are. Let's go ahead and just jump into the text. So look at Luke 1. Luke 1, if you have your Bible. If not, we will put it up on the screen. I won't. Nathan will. He'll do a great job of that. Luke 1, verse 30. Now, this is Gabriel. We have a, an angel that is coming to speak to a young girl, most likely 15 of age, give or take nine months. That's the best that we, our scholars, have deduced. And this is what it says. This is the word of the Lord for us. And the angel, Gabriel, said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child, therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pause for just a second. Can we not forget that this is a teenage girl? Likely a 15-year-old girl. I think history has not done a very good job with Mary, right? Depending on how you grew up. Mary is oftentimes seen as this perfect girl. As if God scanned the horizon looking for a perfect, humble girl. And there she is, Mary. She just stood out while all of her friends are shooting TikTok videos. She's studying the Bible in the library. She's analyzing the Old Testament. It's not how it is. She found favor with God in the same way that Noah did in the same way that Abraham did, where God says, I choose you despite you. It's a 15-year-old girl. She wasn't perfect. Listen, if you grew up Catholic, she wasn't sinless either. 
She wasn't immaculate. She was not some old soul that was preparing herself since birth for this moment. That's not what we have. I have a 15-year-old girl. I have a 15-year-old girl. And if she told me, hey, Dad, I just got back from a run, and this angel named Gabriel showed up and told me that I would be pregnant, but check this, won't have a husband. It's going to happen by the Holy Spirit. I wouldn't believe her. Would you? I would show up to her high school the next day with a big stick and my mean face looking for a guy named Gabriel. That's what would happen, right? (laughs) I wouldn't believe her. And I love her. I love her. I love God. I even love babies, okay? And that is a problem situation. It's an unbelievable situation. And as tough as it is today, it would have been worse back then. It would have been worse back then to be single and to be pregnant was a stigma beyond what we understand today. We are so separate from this society. Her story would have been seen as scandalous and disgraceful, punishable. And even beyond the public disgrace that would have visited her, I want you to consider just for a moment that her whole young life just changed in a snap. Her, her youth just came to an abrupt halt. I mean, have you ever heard bad news or good news maybe? Have you ever heard big news to such a degree that you are processing in real time how it will change the rest of your life? Like the person that's still talking to you, they're still telling you the news, but everything is in slow motion because you're reevaluating how the rest of your life will look. That's what's going on here. Any hope of a normal young life for her just evaporated as she's listening to Gabriel speak. No more prom, no more graduation, no more senior trip, no more college, no more sorority rush. No more trying to start that new business. No more being an entrepreneur. No more storybook wedding. All of it was gone because she's got a baby in her with no dad. Her whole world would be upside down in a matter of seconds. There's a lot of drama in this, and I think we forget that. You know, 10 years ago, MTV started a reality show called 16 and Pregnant, right? Some of you have seen it. Probably most of you have seen at least a few minutes of it. Uh, What's interesting about that series is it's kicked out five spinoffs. Five. I did the math, over 45 seasons right, of material, over, over 500 episodes of drama. Here's the premise of the show. You have basically these young teenage girls that are trying to reconcile the dreams they made in their last life with the reality that is now their new life. It's over 500 episodes of young women trying to build a new 10-year plan because of what is inside of them. While they're trying to adult for the first time, all their friends are still doing the things that they wish that they were doing. They're saying goodbye to their youth. And that's fascinating to people, 500 plus episodes, right? A lot was changing for this little girl. Yet, yet, we see zero evidence that any of this bothered her. Did you notice that? She's not even considering any of this. (laughs) That's crazy. How? How is she not freaking out in this passage? How is she not mad or sad, devastated, morose, contemplative? How is she not different than the way she is? Here's the answer. Because Gabriel is giving her pieces of the gospel, okay? So clearly that it's melting all of her concerns and all of her worries away. Mary's being exposed to the good news, the glad tidings of God for mankind through the person of Jesus. He says that the Son of God will come and sit on David's throne. That's part of what he said. It's a 
bring a kingdom about as promised, a kingdom that doesn't have any ending and no edges to it. By the way, this promise is a 1,000 years old, too. That's four times the age of our country, just to put it into context for you. Imagine that for a moment. A 1,000 years. A 1,000 years earlier, God speaks through another person, a prophet named Nathan, and Nathan is looking at David. God is speaking to David through Nathan and says this in 2 Samuel, And your house and your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Here it is, a millennium later, it's happening. Delivering on the promise. Mary is hearing these truths and her fears and her concerns are melting away. There's nothing that anyone can do that's going to change that for her. There's nothing that anyone can think, say, or do that is going to ruin this moment of joy for her. And it's out of this freedom and this joy and this astonishment that we get a song. She sings a song. It's fascinating. So look at verse 46. Same passage. Just go down to verse 46. This is Mary's song. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Here's the thing. Pause. Here's the thing. We don't sing when we're stressed out. We don't do that. You have this system, the fight, flight, or freeze system, so that when when your eyes lock with something that is dangerous or tragic or a trouble, your brain starts to think, have I dealt with something like this before? If the answer is yes, everything releases. There's no fight or flight. You're able to contend with whatever it is. You can execute, whatever it is. If your brain says, no, I have not seen this before and I don't know what to do, then you either go into fight, flight, or freeze. And whenever that happens, your body disengages from creativity. It's not able to do things like sing or paint or think or rest or anything. And by the way, this is actually a part of God's brilliant design for you and for me. I mean, we look at that as like it's some sort of a curse, but he has designed pieces of our biology to either downregulate or totally shut down and other pieces of our biology to upregulate whenever we come into contact with danger so that we can survive, right? This is, this is his brilliance. This is his kindness to give us that sixth gear in times of trouble. Now, the problem with our anxious society today is we kind of live there, don't we? We live in this place. Some of you, you know what it feels like to walk around with this chronic anxiety, which is actually more harmful to your body than acute or sharp anxiety can be, right? That, that anxiety, that, 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 that smothering oppression that's always kind of looping in the back of your head, it just steals RAM. It's always running, right? That's actually more dangerous to you. It's like the difference between someone pulling a fire alarm and then maybe an hour later the fire marshal realizing it was a prank and everyone going back to class. It's the difference between that and the kid just holding the handle down, right? And that's how a lot of us live. Now, that's not the way our biology was designed to operate, always living there. Now, the human body simply stops some things whenever we see danger or an angel gives us news that will change the rest of our life. For instance, your digestion stops, which is why when some of you get anxious, you have upset stomachs, right? Your immune response starts to downregulate. These are things your body just doesn't need in the moment. Your body's looking to survive, right, not digest the last meal. Starts moving blood, chemicals. There's a, a cascade of over 40 or 50 chemicals that occur in your body to prepare you to survive in that moment. 
right? You stop repairing and growing things. You stop being anabolic in other ways. Your, your brain stops mapping correctly. So all new things that you learn, you are not able to kind of weave them in with old things you already knew, right? Everything changes. Here is one big thing that stops your creativity. That takes a rested state to be creative, to be innovative. I think you know this, right? You've been stressed out and anxious. Does a song come out of you? <laughs> a poem? Not me either. I was thinking about this all week. I've had two near-death moments in my life. Maybe more. That's the only ones I know about. I've had two moments where I've said to myself, I think this might be it. Ah, I hate that this is how my story might end. Seems like a, not the way I had it in my mind. God be good to my family. <laughs> I've had two of those moments in my life, which is probably too, too many. But I've had a legion of moments that were high risk, high danger, horrible news, have to figure something out, right? I've had a lot of those, not able to be imaginative. Didn't find myself singing or watercoloring my imagination in the moment, right? I was in deep strategic execution mode, avoid danger, survive. Here's my big question, why is Mary not doing that? Why is Mary not doing that? Why is she not trying to survive here? If she hired me as her consultant to come in and fix her little problem, step one, Mary, you're gonna have to marry this guy, Joseph. If you like him or not, it doesn't matter. We gotta go to Vegas, we gotta get it done tonight, right? And pray that nobody has a calendar and does the math backwards to find out that this baby is out of wedlock. Step one. Step two, you're gonna have to drop out of school, right? The, the peer pressure's gonna be too much, rumors are gonna fly, you can't get out from underneath it. Step three, we're gonna have to move somewhere else. Egypt's looking pretty good. Gotta go somewhere else where no one knows our name and no one knows our story. That's what anxiety does. It starts to fix the problem. She doesn't do any of that. You see, without the gospel, the good news of God for how safe you are, how approved you are, how, how secure you are, without the gospel before you, you have to employ anxiety to fix your problems. You have to put anxiety on the payroll, so to speak, to come in and fix everything for you because your, your foremost thought will be, how do I fix my problem? How do I fix my problem? Mary's response, because she has the gospel, is not, look how I fix my problem, or how do I do it? It's, look how God has fixed my ultimate problem, not just mine, but the broken cosmos. Not just a 15-year-old girl, but things that are broken on planets that are not even in our orbit. It's how big God is. You see, singing is easy when you don't feel threatened. And this good news coming to Mary, it takes the worst of her bullies and shrinks them. Because here we've got a 15-year-old girl who's probably one of the more vulnerable people in society back then. You don't get much more vulnerable than a single 15-year-old girl in this time and in this place. Yet I can't pick that up from this passage that she feels vulnerable at all. Right? Nothing's making her afraid in this moment. She knows if the gospel is true, and the new king is coming, and he will sit on the throne, and that means all these other passages are true. It means it's finally happening. It means this thing that we've been waiting for, the gospel is starting to carry through, and it's starting right, which means death is on its run. Death is running out of time. Chaos will stop soon. All of this mourning is gonna turn into celebration. All of this sadness is about to be laughter. Creation will be renewed. The king is coming. David's throne will be held by a better David. All of this is happening as promised on time. He is coming to fix all that is broken. 
He will take mercy and bring it to those who have no mercy for each other. He will take grace and give it to people who don't deserve it. He will keep his promise. Nothing will stop him. He is coming. All hail the king. That is what she's saying in her heart of hearts. Man, I need this song so bad. I need this so bad because my alarm system, when it cranks on, this is what I'm convinced in the thick of my troubles with all of my issues going on, that now is no time to celebrate. Now is no time for the heart to sing. Now is no time to rest. Maybe later when the problem is gone. Maybe later, but not now. No way. Let me ask you, where are you doing this? What is keeping you from singing? What is keeping your heart from being at a place where it could just creatively reflect on the Lord and be thankful? To be steady. To be steady. To not be panicked. What's, what's the biggest bully for you right now? Telling you that now is no time to trust and rest in the Lord. Because here's the truth. The more clearly you see the person and the work of Jesus, the more you will find perspective in this world. That's just the truth. Imagine, this is, the best way I've, this is the best way I've grown from this truth. Imagine you have a dashboard in this, I don't know, this thing called life, like a car dashboard, right? Dials, gauges, digital displays all over it, right? And of course, the, the windshield, right? And through the windshield, you see where you're going, I guess the future. If the gospel is the biggest gauge on your dashboard, always in your eye line, always seeing it, believing it, and trusting in it, then your perspective is going to make sense. Where you're going is going to make sense. But if you take that away, everything changes. When the gospel is before me on my good days and I see it and I believe it, that gauge is working and it's right on the front of my dash, rejection, it just loses its sting. So does the fear of death, the hunger to be approved all the time. Cancer feels a little bit smaller to me. So does climate change, by the way. Social trends don't frighten me anymore. There really aren't any boogeymen left that haunt me when I have the gospel within my eyeline. None left. So I'm learning a lot from this 15-year-old girl who is singing when the world is trying to convince her now is not a good time to sing. Now is just not a good time to sing. In your life, what is it that more time, money, or know-how would fix? Because whatever that is, you will use anxiety to get those things. An anxious spirit will come up and try to get you more money, more time, more knowledge, more friends, more something. Listen, when the gospel is the major gauge on our dashboard... I mean, personally, I find myself to just be more courageous, more creative, more rested, more confident, more bold, more settled in my heart. But when I stop believing in the gospel and I take that gauge off of my dashboard, well, I start slamming into guardrails. Everything starts to fray. What's in front of me, I just don't have good perspective anymore. You see, do you see how... Do you see how important it is that we understand the gospel does more than just save us? It sustains us. I know I say it all the time, but that doesn't mean that we understand. The gospel does more than make you new. The gospel carries you throughout your normal work week. It sustains you. It becomes the answer to the things like addiction and fear and anxiety and depression. It becomes the answer to those things. One of the 
one of the main passages we get this gospel-centered living is from 1 Corinthians 15, and it'll be up on the screen. It's just Paul speaking to a young church. And he says, now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel. That's the good news, glad tidings of what God has done for mankind through the person of Jesus. For your benefit at his cost, right? Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you which you received, number one, and which you stand, number two, and which you were being saved, number three. Okay? So what Paul is saying, this is how he's engaging the gospel in this moment. I gave you this gospel and you received it and you became Christians when you did, when you trusted in it. You became born again. Welcome to the family. But also you stand in this gospel. This is how I get through my day. This is how I parent my kids. This is how I write my checks. This is how I deal with my doubts. This is how I deal with my future. It's the gospel. It sustains me. It doesn't just save me. It sustains me. It's not just the diving board. It's the whole pool, right? And then it is that I'm being saved. It is going to chase me all the way to glorification where one day I will be made new. I will, and I will know as I've been known. That's glorification. That's what we call glorification is for all of those things. It's important for us. We are saved by glad tidings. We enjoy God by glad tidings. We endure, we survive by glad tidings. There's probably another little point of theology in here, and I don't have a lot of opportunities to preach something like this, but if we do, if, if we do a good job at being a gospel-centered church, we might have to have some gospel vocabulary down. This is a key mistake I see people tripping on. But if you look in verse 50, she says in this song, and his, God's mercy, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mercy. Why not grace? She says mercy. Do you know the difference between mercy and grace? It's, they're common words in the Bible. I hear them interchanged a lot, right? But just to kick it out there, and this deserves its own series, and we're not going to do it today, but grace is receiving what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Okay, let me say that again. Grace is God's favor to you despite you. It's you getting something, God's favor, that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting destruction, what you do deserve. You could, you could say it's two sides of the same coin if you want. I, what I've noticed is in the church, our hearts typically lean a little bit more towards grace than it does mercy. We like being reminded of the favor that we get with no merit more than we like to really sit and think about the destruction that we avoided, right? But mercy is a giant piece of your good story, your gospel. Mercy is a, an important feature of how God has been good to you because you are not getting what you do deserve. But somebody is. Somebody's getting what we deserved, right? And that's where Christ comes in. That's why there's blood on the cross, right? You see, a bloody cross does not look at you as a person and say, innocent. Because of what Jesus has done, you are now innocent. No, 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 no. You're not innocent. You're still guilty. It's just that the punishment that was coming towards you is now being absorbed by another out of mercy. You're not getting what you do deserve, right? This is important for us. This is why mercy is such good news to us because Jesus absorbed something that was due for us. And listen, if that is true, if that is true, if what Mary is saying in this is true, then that means I don't have to fear punishment now. It's already been absorbed. Paul says down to the last drop, right? I might get disciplined. It's not the same as punishment. 
punishment is there's no place for you here. You're not approved, right? Wrath is coming. Discipline is as I love you and I hold you close. Right? There's a very big difference. And if I don't have to fear punishment, then what do I have to fear? What other bully is there for me, right? So what Martin Luther said, he's a conflicted man if you could say anything about him. Luther says to deal effectively with life's daily fears, we must first deal with life's ultimate fear, to die without a place or godly acceptance. My ultimate anxiety, Luther says, is my fear that I will never find peace with God, never be accepted by God. What is he saying right there? He's saying if death is off the table, then what are the other bullies? I mean, if death is off the table, what is an anti, what, 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 what is a, I don't know, what's a, what's a lost limb, a lost friendship, a lost job, autoimmune disease, problem, tragedy, you fill in the blank, what is it? If death is off the table, I think it's a settled and a convinced heart that can sing a song with courage when everything around them swirls and says, now is not a time to sing, right? But she does something really cool in the last part of her song, we're almost finished, but I want to look at this in Luke 151. So jump right back in. And she says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring, forever. The second half of the song is about God's strength in the gospel for all of mankind, right? And, and what it does is it shows us that God is not just fixing broken people. He's fixing broken systems, even a broken planet, you could say, a broken cosmos, because the gospel's personal, like how it changes me. And then it's also super personal, how it changes all of creation that has been cracked and broken. I mean, what we see in this is God is going to flip things over in his new kingdom, where the world's elite will be humbled and the world's humble will be exalted. All of this is going to happen by his strong arm and his sovereignty is undisputable. His plan is never frustrated. And, and if you don't know what sovereignty means, if you're still collecting these vocabulary words, all it means is this, very simple. God controls everything. He controls everything. That's what it means for him to be sovereign. The hearts of kings, the hearts of influencers, they are bent by his hand, and no one can contest it, no one can argue, no one can advise him, and no one can get in his way. No one can get in his way. Stop him. You know, it's interesting to me. I'm fascinating that people are having a hard time knowing what to do with Kanye West. Not just in the world, but in the church. I think the world is kind of like, yeah, whatever, it's Kanye. But the church is like, what do we do with this guy? Do we embrace him? Do we cautiously look at him? Do we just make him prove himself for a few? What do we do with this guy named Kanye West? This is the reason the church is struggling with it. It's because he came from a background where he was very opposite of where he is right now. I mean, let's just face it. His influence is probably bigger than about 20 countries that we don't even know the names to, right? Globally, he has a very, very big empire, a lot of influence. And it was headed in a very different direction. And now it looks like things have possibly turned 180. And we don't know what to do with it because he looked unstoppable. But does that shock us? Look at Paul. He was killing people. He was torturing people. He says, there was no one quite like me. I'm the worst of them. Listen, be excited, be curious, be cautious. Don't be amazed, though. God does this all the time. He does it. He does it quickly. He's very good at it. 
He can lift the insignificant to towering status. He could take what looks like it's impenetrable and just bring it right down to the ground. Because the kingdom of God, it has its own gravity. It has its own, it, it, bringing people, drawing people to where God wants them to go. All the political towers that we build so carefully today, they, they could come crumbling down tomorrow very easily, very quickly. What mankind looks at and says, we can't stop that, God could stop it without even snapping his fingers. All the elite shapers of culture and society, they bend to his gravity. His kingdom has a gravity in everybody, whether you are ready for it or not. All power, political, social, economic, it will change because of the gospel that is bound up in this child, that is bound up in this teenager's womb in some place that we've never even been. It's amazing. And this makes sense. I mean, where are yesterday's influencers? Where are yesterday's kings? Tech tycoons, athletes, dictators. If I were to start rattling off names, you'd be like, oh, yeah, whatever happened to that person? They're gone. That's what happened to that person. They came, they hit their peak, they had fame, and then they just kind of stopped being on magazine covers. Why? I don't know. Maybe they're just not relevant anymore. Maybe they died. Maybe they were discredited. They were humbled. They were brought low. Everyone, willingly or unwillingly, will be humbled. Okay? It's the gravity of the kingdom. It's the economics of, of God's kingdom. Mary is looking, and she's listening to Gabriel. But she's aware that world powers have always spit in the face of God. I mean, Rome is all over the place. You think they care about the temple? You think they care about the Old Testament? Nope. And Rome looks unstoppable. But they're not. She sees smoke curl into the air every morning from a thousand wicked idol temples. Just temples all over, sacrificing animals, sacrificing people even. And no one had been able to change that. Forty kings and the history of Israel come and go, and they can't clean all that up. It looks unstoppable. But is it? She sees high priests manipulate an Old Testament system that's supposed to point to God. Who can get rid of that? That, that looks permanent. Who gets rid of a sacrificial system? Everything looks like it is never going to change. The rich get richer. The poor get poor. Nothing changed. Everything looks like it cannot be moved. And this child inside of her is going to turn it all over. He's going to flip every, every table in his, in his path. He's going to turn it all over. Listen, we need this super personal gospel every bit as much as we need this personal gospel. We need this to remind us that God's kingdom, it works on a different economy. It works on a different time. It works in a different direction with a different philosophy, a different culture, and a different gravity. It works. It's just different. Not, listen, not even creation will come apart until God deems it so. Until God deems it so. I'm interested in this sit-in that happened a week ago between the two football superpowers we know as Harvard and Yale. They meet to have a football game. About 50 college students sit down in the middle of the football field for a sit-in. Why? To educate you. To educate you that our climate has totally come undone and there's nothing you can do about it. That we have ruined this place and now this place will ruin mankind, right? Now listen. I love football, and I think I would have rather watched the sit-in. Right? Two reasons, right? One, watching those two teams play football against each other is like watching a couple toddlers fight over a cracker or something like that. It's Harvard, and it's Yale. The sit-in. Let the sit-in keep going, right? But second, I'm always interested and fascinated. I'm always interested and fascinated by people 
when they declare that God is not in charge. It's fascinating to me the audacity it takes for a whole generation to say, God can't change this. There is no God. There's no sovereignty that can change this. We have 12 years left. We've ruined this. This is unstoppable. As if, as if God cannot snap his fingers, as if this is out of his hands. Now listen, I recycle for different reasons than they recycle. I'm all about taking care of the planet. I think we do it from a gospel posture as well. But man, this is God's planet. He created it out of nothing. There is nothing. There's not one thing that stands, rises, or falls without God saying now. Not one thing. The same gospel that changed this girl's heart is going to change even the earth itself and all the systems that are inside of it. So here are the big questions as we finish. As you read the lyrics to this song, can you see God has mercy and power? Mercy and power. And do you have a visual of the gospel? Or are you only able to see the problems that swirl around you? Is the gospel a gauge on your dashboard that you use? Is it one that's in your eyeline? The more you see and enjoy the gospel, the smaller this world becomes. The tinier the bullies are. The more you enjoy and accurately see the gospel, the more your anxieties will shrink. And some of us need to hear that, probably only that. The more you can sing. The more you enjoy the gospel, the more creative you will be, the more courageous you will be, the more rested you will be. The more your heart will find peace, the less you will feel threatened, the less you will feel grumpy, the less you will feel panicked, the less you will feel dominated by all the social trends today. There's plenty of room for us to repent in this sermon. What is keeping you from enjoying, enjoying the news that God has come and he is coming again? Because I'm asking you to repent with me and join this 15-year-old who has everything to lose and absolutely nothing to lose all at the same time because our king has come and he is coming again. In fact, go ahead and stand with me and I'm going to read a passage over you. This is in Revelation. This is the second advent. Just a glimpse, not the whole thing. It's chapter 19. John, the revelator, says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, who is stopping him? Who can stand before that? Who says this can't be changed to that? Who looks at him and says this is unstoppable? This is unchangeable. You can flip things over, but not this. Who, who does that to him? The one on a, on, the, on a white horse. And what is telling you that you should be worried right now? What is telling you that God is not merciful? 
What is telling you that he is not merciful? Because if he's not merciful to you, friend, then you're still waiting for a punishment to come, aren't you? You're still waiting for a punishment. Who's trying to convince you that God is not sovereign? Because if he's not sovereign to you, that means you've, you've got to start fending for yourself. If he's not in control, you better be in control. And that's where anxiety comes in. That's where you put him on the payroll. And listen, if some of you are here, you are far from Christ. Maybe you're skeptical. Maybe you're searching. You need to know that mercy is a gift that God gives. He's giving you grace by giving you something you don't deserve, but mercy is where destruction swerves around you and lands on one who is better, one who has cried out to God in your stead. But that mercy, as Mary says, is only found by those who fear God. And that word for you just means to be astonished astonished by God, to reverently worship God. That's who finds such mercy. This is what I beg of you. I beg of you that you would ask God for this mercy. I beg you that you would ask God and beg God for this grace and this mercy, that you would call him king, that your heart would be astonished by what he has done and who he is, that you would be saved today. I'm gonna pray for you as I pray for all of us today. But listen, if you feel like the Lord is doing something in your heart, I want you to find me at some point, me or somebody in here, And tell them, I think God has done something in my heart. I don't really know what, and I don't know how to describe it, but I think he's done something. Can you help me with it? We'd love to talk to you. But as we go into worship, we'll have the elements in the back. We'll have some bread and some juice, and all that is is a celebration of how that mercy is given to us by spilt blood and a broken body. That bread and that juice is the emblem of punishment landing on someone so that it does not land on you. So if you are a person here that is a Christian, whether you're at Legacy or another church, we just invite you to take communion. If you're not a Christian, we just ask you to consider, consider Christ, ask him for mercy, ask him for grace as he does something very real in you through the power of his Holy Spirit. So Father, we thank you for being good to us and kind to us. Thank you for this song. It's not often that I feel led by a 15-year-old girl, but in this, I feel led. Because I don't always trust your mercy. Sometimes I do feel like you're going to punish. So I, I don't always feel not threatened. I don't always sing with joy. I do struggle with you always being in control. Oh, Lord, your gospel's so good that it could take failures like me and love me anyway. There's not a single person in this room who does a fantastic job with how they handle stress and anxiety. There's not a single person in this room that always believes in your gospel all the time. There's not, there's not anyone in this room that has that as the biggest dial on their dashboard at all times, always looking at it, believing, enjoying, and trusting. But Lord, when you wreck our hearts and you change us, you love us no matter. So Lord, today that you would challenge our hearts and encourage our hearts. And Lord, that you would even change some hearts today. Lord, we love you. We're very thankful for you. You're very kind to us. So we're going to sing, we're going to give, pray, take communion, enjoy each other's company, and go back out into this city. And we're going to do so in your name, for your glory is grand and it is before us. We love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.